It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Woke up this morning, looked out the window. It was raining pretty hard here in Washington. About 45 degrees. I don't usually leave with the weather report, but you'll see where this is going. And um, about an hour later, I happened to glance out my office window, and it was snowing. A lot of snow coming down. It's about 36 degrees. And I look at my phone, and it says that by tonight it will be 10 degrees. And then that pattern is being repeated everywhere. Um, and I can't really complain because I'm not on a plane going somebody, somewhere. Thousands of flights are either been canceled or are in the process of being canceled. And a lot of places, particularly in the Midwest, are going to just get sucked in by snow. So it looks like your garden variety travel nightmare uh, with a collision of holidays, weather, and some bad luck. However, it's Christmas weekend. So I hope you have a good one coming up. Happy Merry Christmas to everybody who will be celebrating on Sunday. I will be working. So if you have time or inclination to tune into Media Buzz at 11 a.m. Eastern on Sunday morning, we will be there doing the job. Uh, And then we'll put the segments online as we usually do. Uh, Probably for a lot of you, it means being reunited with family or going to see family and probably eating a whole lot. And that's fine. It's that time of year. Um, You know who else will be visiting family, visiting his uh, parents for a long time to come, apparently, is Sam Bankman-Fried. He's now sort of under house arrest. Uh, Yesterday, he walked out of the courthouse in New York free on a $250 million bond. He's got to stay with his parents, what I'm sure is a very nice house in California while awaiting trial on criminal charges that he basically single-handedly tanked the crypto market. This indicted crypto king perpetrated a fraud of epic proportions, according to Assistant U.S. Attorney at the trial. The fact that he waived extradition from the Bahamas was a major factor in the the judges thinking that, okay, this guy was willing to come back to the U.S., probably not going to flee. He was asked, oh, he, he put on a suit and tie for this. Isn't that interesting? No more T-shirt and shorts. Uh, did he understand that he would face arrest and owe $250 million, which he probably can't pay now anyway? If he were to flee, he said that he understood that. You know, his father worked for him and may be implicated in this huge legal and financial and creepy crypto mess as well. You know, I'm still just shaking my head about the sheer drama and effectiveness of Volodymyr Zelensky's uh, speech to Congress the other night. So many standing ovations from both sides of the aisle. And he just had that knack. He has that aura around him, you know, showing up a modified version of combat fatigues, um, where he symbolizes hope and democracy. And it's not to say that he's perfect or that Ukraine is perfect, but he's not asking us for troops, not asking us to put lives of our soldiers at risk. He's just asking us for money and equipment. But I am a little pissed off, to say the least, because 
Washington Post has this huge TikTok about how this visit, this very relatively brief visit to Washington, which included of meetings with President Biden, a press conference, a speech to Congress, and then he's out of here, stopped off to talk in Poland and went back uh, to his country. How this was pulled off in almost utter secrecy. Part of the story says that on December 14th, so that's a week ago Wednesday, the White House sent a formal invitation to Zelensky after hearing that he might be inclined to make this his first trip out of his war-torn country after 300 days. He accepted. On Sunday, the day of the World Cup final, senior U.S. officials got word the trip had been officially confirmed. Zelensky would be here in D.C. in three days. Now we get to the part that's uh, got my blood boiling. Hours before Zelensky left Ukraine, Punchbowl News reported that the Ukrainian leader was planning to travel to Washington to address Congress. Senior U.S. officials had hoped to keep Zelensky's travel secret until he was safely out of Ukraine. Quickly alerted the traveling delegation. He never considered canceling. 11 hours after the U.S. military aircraft took off, he touched down at Joint Base Andrews. Okay, why in the world would you report that and jeopardize his safety? It's not even a big scoop. You know, I've had a lot of exclusives in my time, and they fall into two categories. One category is stories that would never see the light of day, not for your reporting. Nobody would ever know about the information. And the other category is, and I've had lots of these too, something you find out that's going to become public, but you get it before everybody else. Maybe an hour before, maybe a day before, maybe 10 minutes before, maybe a minute before in the age of Twitter and Instagram. So why in the world would Punchball News not sit on this information knowing full well that the tyrants in Russia would like nothing better than to kill the president of Ukraine? And, you know, this is a regime that kills children, it kills women, it kills civilians without a second thought. And he hadn't left yet. How, on what planet is it worth such a cheap scoop as opposed to holding it. The contrast is with CBS, which found out days before Brittany Griner came back to the U.S. that that deal had been all but finalized, sat on the story until it was made public so as not to jeopardize her return. That's the way you do it. Now, look, there are times when the government says, oh, this is national security, you can't report it, and sometimes that's BS. But when you're talking about the personal safety of whether it's somebody who's been held, in effect, as a prisoner of war, as uh, Brittany Griner was, and, or, the leader of a country with which we are aligned, who risks his life all the time, who just came back from the front lines and presented Nancy Pelosi uh, with that flag, that battle flag, signed by a bunch of the soldiers and got uh, an American-style flag in return. Anyway, it was a great appearance, but sometimes I wish my colleagues would be a little more responsible. Story number one. The House January 6th committee final report is finally out. There are some interesting tidbits, but more interesting, I think, is the whole tale, the whole saga of Cassidy Hutchinson. I went into some of this yesterday, but there's even more material now. So first of all, Cassidy Hutchinson testified, because we're seeing now the full transcripts, um, that... Her boss, Mark Meadows, White House Chief of Staff, was told by Donald Trump, I don't want people to know we lost, Mark. This is embarrassing. Figure it out. 
making the case that Trump knew, of course, that he lost. Hutchinson also testified that John Ratcliffe, former director of national intelligence, told her that Trump had privately conceded that he lost the election. He's like, I've had a few conversations with the president where he acknowledged he's lost. He hasn't acknowledged that he wants to concede, but he acknowledges that he lost the election. Then he'll immediately backpedal. So he was back and forth. The reason this matters is, if Donald Trump knew he lost and then decided to mount what is now a more than two-year crusade to say that he didn't lose and it was stolen, it goes to the question of intent and deception of all, all of that. Uh, so the final report is like 800 pages. And here's the key sentence or passage. The central cause of January 6th was one man, former President Donald Trump, whom many others followed. None of the events of January 6th would have happened without him. Here's uh, Trump's former deputy campaign manager, Justin Clark, talking about Rudy Giuliani in the days after the election as he was trying to vacuum up, you know, every wild allegation of uh, possible election fraud. Rudy was just chasing ghosts. And then there's a scene where President Trump and others are in the Oval Office, I believe. This comes from Hope Hicks. Uh, on the phone with, let's just say, one of the more aggressive lawyers on his behalf, Sidney Powell. And she's talking about, you know, money from Venezuela and Cuba, grand conspiracies to overturn the election. And Trump puts the phone on mute and says, this does sound crazy, doesn't it? All right. But Cassidy Hutchinson, now that we know the story, I think it was very brave of her to give that particularly televised testimony. She was very poised and, you know, she said a lot of things. And again, I'm not putting her on a pedestal, but she worked for Mark Meadows. She wanted to be part of the Trump administration. I mean, I've said again and again and again, I think the committee has made mistakes. It was too partisan. It was too much Trump is guilty speechifying. I think the criminal referrals are empty and symbolic. But the panel did dig up a lot of information. And here's this young woman. And she has to testify in a deposition before the committee. And the Trump White House arranged for her to get a lawyer, Stefan Passantino, who, based on her testimony, and of course, all the legal experts are parading across cable TV, um, may be accused of or certainly there are strong whiffs of witness tampering because she didn't have any money to hire a lawyer and she was scared. So Passantino shows up and says, I'll be your lawyer. Uh, don't worry about the money. I won't, I'll never send you a bill. Where's it coming from? Uh, we'll talk about that later. And he goes on and on and on to say, look, the committee doesn't know what you can recall and can't recall. Saying I don't recall is not perjury. Um, you don't have to fill in a lot of blanks. Uh, we're, we know you're loyal. We know we can count on you. I mean, you know, you don't have to have seen a lot of Godfather movies to understand what he's saying. Keep your lips zipped. Don't say anything incriminating. When she got to the part about the altercation and the beast and the limo, or the SUV it was, uh, when Trump wanted to go to the Capitol on January 6th, uh, we're not going to get into that. And... So she gave very limited 
information. She felt she had lied. She thought she was effed in her first deposition. And she said she would pass the mirror and she would say, I'm going to have to live with this for the rest of my life. And Cassidy Hutchinson said, I've got to fix this as best I can. So she went to her father. She didn't have much of a relationship with her father. Father was a big Trump supporter. Begged him for some help, money, and support. Didn't get it. She had a couple members of QAnon, QAnon followers in her family. They weren't able to do anything for her. Finally, I guess somebody arranged for her to get a pro bono lawyer. And she said, well, she said she wanted to come back to the committee and testify. And then she gave the fuller deposition, some of which we've seen. And then, of course, she goes before the committee uh, in the glare of the Klieg lights and delivers what I thought was probably the most effective testimony of the entire year and a half of hearings. But privately, she's terrified. Oh, the less you remember, the better, Passantino told her. You know, you were just a secretary. It's just demeaning. It's just really demeaning, the way they leaned on this young woman. Um, And so she then tells somebody, according to her deposition, that she knows, if she tells the truth, that the entire weight of Trump world is going to come down on her. She knows it. And she says, I'm going to be effing nuked. They're going to ruin my life. Imagine standing up to that kind of pressure when really all you had to do was say nothing. You know, you gave your limited definition. I don't know. I can't recall. Oh, and the part about potential job opportunities. I mean, that seals it. Yeah, we'll take care of you. Get a nice job. Nothing to worry about. Nothing to see here. Just incredible. Just absolutely friggin' incredible. Because, you know, the hard-bitten political and media types who've been through the wars, you know, we tend to look at everybody as a combatant. But these are human beings. Sometimes they have families and kids and mortgages to worry about. And sometimes they're young people themselves who haven't developed that thick layer of cynicism. This was a woman who wanted to do the right thing. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. All right, so the New York Times has this um, very lengthy TikTok behind the scenes uh, about how the January 6th committee did its job. And the amazing part is, so much of it is about the hearings as a television show. Now, we all knew that in the beginning, that James Goldston from ABC News, who had overseen Nightline, who had overseen Good Morning America, you know, was brought in to try to aid with the storytelling part. But, you know, the, this is all just treated as if it was, uh, you know, the Manhattan Project in World War II. Goldston struggled to contain his astonishment. He asked the staff how in past House hearings video footage was played. Someone just clicks a button on a laptop, he was told. Did they use a control room? No. No such room existed. Was there a video production staff on hand? No. Was there money in the budget to hire such a staff? Uh, well, we know how to run hearings. We've done this before. I can't do this, Goldston said. He was about to quit. When the top members of the committee found this out, 
they took a few more days and um, they gave him money to recruit a staff. And then he started to recruit people he had worked with at Nightline and at ABC. Together they constructed a temporary control room in the Cannon House office building, one floor above the committee room. It just goes, you know, <laughs> you can see in the Netflix version, the music getting more dramatic, highly experienced professionals. And they had this quote up on a poster, a line from the movie version of Watergate, All the President's Men. I think it's the line that was put in Ben Bradley's mouth. Nothing's riding on this except the First Amendment of the Constitution, freedom of the press, and maybe the future of the country. Oh, then here's my favorite part. Every word was intentional, one senior staff member recalled. Nothing was spontaneous. They would come up with these scripts about which member of the nine-member panel was going to do the narration or the questioning. Those scripts were sent embargoed to TV news organizations in advance to help facilitate the coverage and even cue the camera angles for dramatic moments. The theme of each script was built around a list of 100 or so factual elements, which Goldstein's team would then bring to life through graphics and video. Each hearing was preceded by at least two rehearsals in the Cannon Caucus Room on evenings or weekends. Each monologue was timed with a stopwatch held by the communications director. One rehearsal lasted five hours and the script of the hearing had to be cut nearly in half. Well, you know, that's what we in the TV business do all the time. I mean, we don't have that many rehearsals when you're in the 24-hour news business, but for a big special, you'll do it. And you try to get the camera angles right, and you try to see how long things are, and you cut them down, and you cut them down because you've only got an hour or two hours or whatever it is. So for those who want to say it was a show, yeah, it was a show. For those who want to argue about whether it was an effective show, well, this goes back to the fact of Kevin McCarthy's decision to pull his remaining members after Nancy Pelosi knocked off two of his nominees, leaving the world, really, with a one-sided committee. Story number two, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader. Now, McConnell usually does his best to ignore Donald Trump. Doesn't like to even use his name. But here's what he told NBC News about the midterms. Here's what I think has changed. I think the former president's political clout has diminished. We can do a better job with less political interference. The former president may have other things to do. Looking ahead to 2024, we lost support that we needed among independents and moderate Republicans. Primarily related to the view they had of us as a party, largely made by the former president, that we were sort of nasty and tended toward chaos. And oddly enough... Even though that subset of voters did not approve of President Biden, they didn't have enough confidence in us in several instances to give us the majority we needed. I mean, here's a guy who thought he was a lot to be majority leader, and then they lost all five of those key battleground states, and he is again the minority leader, and he's speaking out about Trump losing clout. Oh, here's a kind of a related thing. Matt Gates, uh, Congressman Matt Gates, writing a piece for the Daily Caller, going up against Kevin McCarthy. Uh, How well did Speaker Paul Ryan serve conservatives during Donald Trump's first term? Are we glad that his tenure got off to a smooth start? Would have been better to have debated and chosen the right leader. Ryan, of course, uh, supports McCarthy. Every single Republican Congress knows that Kevin does not actually believe anything. He has no ideology. Some conservatives are using this fact to convince themselves that he is the right leader for the moment. As McCarthy is so weak, he'll promise anything to anyone. 
as his mentor recently confessed, he lies. He'll change the lie if necessary. So that, ladies and gentlemen, is like a full-scale frontal attack on a fellow member of your party trying to knock him out of the speakership. Now, if Kevin McCarthy does become speaker, I don't think uh, Matt Gates is going to get many favorites from him, let's put it that way. But by the way, do you want the Speaker of the House, if you're in the same party, to be somebody with really, really, really strong ideological views who's going to impose his or her will on the caucus? Or do you want somebody who's more of a people person because your job is basically to reflect and represent the caucus with disparate factions? There's always two, three, four different factions, no matter which party, in which chamber. And don't you want somebody who knows how to cut deals and, you know, get stuff done? Maybe not. Number three, TikTok. Well, this looks bad at a time when TikTok is trying to uh, fight off uh, more federal regulation. You know, that big, ugly, uh, ominous bill that passed yesterday, avoiding a government default. Um, the Republicans wanted to ban TikTok in the U.S. The compromise was banning it on government devices. So there was also this amazing um, thing about the border. They adopted dueling uh, amendments on the border, one pro-Republican, one pro-Democrat, that cancel each other out just so they can go home to the voters as well. You know, I voted for this. Just amazing. Anyway, TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, said it has fired four employees after an internal probe found they had access data on two journalists and other U.S. users trying to track down a company leak. So the company was trying to identify who had given internal documents to journalists for BuzzFeed News and the Financial Times. And workers, two in China, two here in the U.S., pulled the reporters' IP addresses and other data, tried to use these IP addresses. They're basically these codes assigned to every Internet device, and that's what the cookies track and so forth, um, to see who they've been talking to, and they couldn't figure out the leak as it happened. So this is pretty discouraging for those who like TikTok and say TikTok can be trusted. Um, this went out to staff. It was shared with the Washington Post. New York Times was the first to report it. Financial Times said journalist Christina Criddle had been targeted after reporting on a culture clash inside TikTok's London office. Spying on reporters, interfering with their work, and intimidating their sources is completely unacceptable, says the FT. Forbes Chief Content Officer Randall Lane called the data gathering a direct assault on the idea of a free press and its critical role in a functioning democracy. You know, it used to be harder to do this. Back in the days of Watergate, if you wanted to spy on somebody, you had to break in uh, to the office and actually commit a burglary. And of course, remember, you'll all remember the scene from the movie where they put a piece of tape on the door at the Watergate Hotel, which still exists in Washington as a landmark. And um, the night watchman comes, takes it off, and somebody puts it back. And that's when the burglars got caught working for Creep or the committee to reelect the president. The president being Nixon. And then it became, you know, electronic eavesdropping. That's what happened in the Obama administration when journalists turned against President Obama's efforts or his Justice Department's efforts 
to track down leaks by the AP, by former Fox correspondent James Rosen. And then it was a similar thing with President Trump. Uh, in this case, the question was, their electronic, uh, the certain journalists had their electronic data tampered with or scrutinized, but they were never told until after the fact. And now you just get their IP addresses. You don't even have to leave your office chair. Story number four, Elon Musk says he will stop selling Tesla stock. He's gotten rid of almost $40 billion of stock in his electric car company, which helped to push the price to a two-year low. Uh, He now said in one of these live audio Twitter spaces things, I won't sell stock until, I don't know, probably two years from now. Definitely not next year under any circumstances. Probably not the year thereafter. Um, because he doesn't want to run on the bank, in in effect. He doesn't want to create the appearance that he's lost confidence in the stock. He obviously needed this to complete the Twitter deal and maybe now to subsidize Twitter because Twitter is losing a lot of money after the $44 billion purchase. Uh, Note of skepticism here that uh, he had made similar proclamations back in April, again in August, but kept selling more shares so he could buy Twitter. A uh, longtime investor in Tesla uh, said, you know, he's got to stop or he's got to spend more time on Tesla and less time on Twitter. Hence the poll saying he'll step down as CEO. He'll appoint somebody foolish enough to take the job. That person has not yet surfaced in other Twitter news. Remember the college student, uh, the guy running the uh, at Elon Jet who got banned and then a bunch of journalists got banned temporarily because they either covered the story or linked to his account, but some didn't. <laughs> Um, so the guy's name is Jack Sweeney, 20 years old, and he's now changed the account. He's caved in. And I think this is actually a good thing. It's now called at Elon Jet next day. So he'll still track the, the uh, movements of the jet, but with a 24 hour delay, which is what Musk had originally asked for. But the kid decided he liked the brief moment of fame. And so he was sort of grandstanding. But now, you know, you can't really argue that if you, published the fact that Musk landed in Los Angeles or New York or Johannesburg a day ago, that that is a clear and present danger to his family. I mean, it just doesn't tell you anything beyond the fact that that's where the jet uh, touched down. So that I find sort of interesting. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. And here's a piece in the Wall Street Journal that will give you a sense of why Musk is in dire financial straits with Twitter and why he felt that he got to essentially dump about 75 to 80% of its staff. About 70% of Twitter's top 100 ad spenders before Musk took over are not spending, at least as of the week ending December 18th, according to some research firm. And it's not like Elon as the world's now what, second richest man can ignore it because Almost 9 out of $10 of Twitter revenue, the total revenue last year, just over $5 billion, came from advertising. Now, he may want to get off advertising, but you can't just snap your fingers and do that. In meetings with advertisers uh, recent weeks, says the journal, Musk's lieutenants have tried to calm fears and drum up interest in the site. They promised innovations, such as ads that allow users to make purchases directly, 
That would seem like a good high-tech thing to do. Click here. More video capabilities. Tools to keep ads from appearing near objectionable content. I wonder how that would work, according to sources. Um, some ad buyers say they will need to see the changes at Twitter before they feel comfortable coming back. They're concerned about Musk's moves as owner and CEO, including abrupt rulemaking and controversial tweets. Uh, you know, right now, Musk is Twitter, and so it's almost like Twitter doesn't have a separate brand from what Elon is doing. Now, the list of defectors includes, drumroll please, United Airlines, General Mills, General Motors, Pfizer. Um, Musk wants to, you know, wean the company off of the ad dollars and get with this $8 a month plan. But that takes time. You can't just throw away 90% of your revenue overnight and expect to have a functioning uh, operation. Uh, so also some advertisers were pissed off because when he was in a feistier mood, Musk was threatening a thermonuclear name and shame versus advertisers who had left. Uh, well, what shame is there is making a business decision to leave Twitter. Why would that be a great name and shame thing? I don't know. Um, Twitter doesn't have great leverage on Madison Avenue, unlike, uh, Meta, um, and it's got competitors, you know, everything from Netflix to TikTok. Oh, Elon says uh, Twitter is rolling out view count, so you can see how many times a tweet has been seen. This is normal for video. Shows how much more, how much more alive Twitter is, and it may seem, as over 90% of Twitter users read, but don't tweet, reply, or like. So on the one hand, this feeds the addiction to, like, i got to get my numbers up, how many people like me, how many people are seeing my stuff. On the other hand... It gives users reassurance that even though maybe the bulk of the Twitter population, the users that is, are more passive, they're not hitting the button every time they see something that makes them smile or cry or whatever, uh, but it is reaching people. You know, it's pretty simple stuff, I, only because Twitter was bound by this traditional, like you couldn't edit the tweets, which always drives me crazy. Because I'm like a stickler for that. So I, I misspell a word. I go back. I have to delete it. Write the tweet again. Screw that, right? <laughs> All right. Uh, number five. I mentioned the other day this New York Times piece on incoming Republican Congressman George Santos. And how I still can't believe that he ran for Congress twice. Lost the first one. Won this time. And whoever was running against him didn't discover that basically his entire resume was... I mean, saying padded or embellishment doesn't really do it justice because when it came to where he went to school, where he had worked, he claimed to have worked at two giant Wall Street firms, um, a uh, foundation or group he set up to help animals. I mean, one after another after another, the New York Times either couldn't confirm it or there was no record, didn't go to the school he claimed to have gone to, didn't work at Goldman Sachs the way he had claimed. It's, you know, it's two phone calls. You're running the campaign against this guy? You just accept it? It's two phone calls. But now comes the kicker. George Santos ran very openly as a gay Republican and is billed as the first out gay Republican to be elected to Congress who wasn't already an incumbent. 
you know, obviously when people like Barney Frank got to Congress, people, uh, voters of Massachusetts didn't know that. But then you run for re-election, then you tell the Boston Globe that you're gay, and, you know, it obviously doesn't seem as dramatic as it did back in the days of Barney. But the Daily Beast now reporting that just two weeks before launching his first congressional campaign, 2020, he divorced a woman named Uadla Santos. Um, but apparently didn't want anybody to know that. Uh, Santos told USA Today this past fall, I'm a gay married man. I'm openly gay. Never had an issue with my sexual identity in the past decade. And I can tell you and assure you I will always be an advocate for LGBTQ folks. Never publicly disclose his marriage to the woman. The reason that's such a mind... <laughs> okay, I can't come up with the right euphemism. The reason that preys on your mind so much is for so many decades in Washington and in the American culture, and there's a great new book out that I'll talk about next week because I'm going to interview the author. I mean, you couldn't be gay and work in the United States federal government. You had to hide it. It was grounds for discharge, not just in the military, in any civilian agency. You couldn't, you know, work in the agriculture department or the interior department if you were gay. And so a lot of people hid the fact that they were gay until then they had Bill Clinton with uh, don't ask, don't tell in the military. And finally today, gay marriage is legal and there are gays openly in every walk of life and that's great and we've made a lot of progress as a society. But Santos must have thought it was an electoral asset to run as a gay Republican and didn't want to muddy the narrative by saying, yeah, I also was married to this woman. Uh, he has promised to address these allegations broken by the New York Times next week. The fact that he couldn't address it immediately tells me he's in trouble. I don't know what will happen. I think he'll probably be seated. Kevin McCarthy or whoever is not going to have that many Republican votes to play with in the House. But he's got some explaining to do. As uh, an old line on a sitcom once put it, and I, obviously struggling with my voice a little bit around holiday time here, as we await the results of this rain-sleet combination, I'm going to sign off now. I do hope you'll have a chance to watch Media Buzz on Sunday. If you don't, I get it. It's a big holiday. And again, a very Merry Christmas to everybody who uh, will be celebrating that holiday. But I will be back here. Might do a shorter one on Monday. I know that everyone's taking that day off. But I look forward to talking to you some more. Thanks for sharing the time with me. We'll see you next time with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.